Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. I don't want to go off the edge. <laughs> yeah, no, that's the most important thing. <laughs> and I don't back up very well. <laughs> well I think you're still oh, I'm still in reverse. <laughs> Jeez. <I'm... laughs> okay, I can... Oh, we're right at the top. <laughs> okay. From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. I'm Angela Evansy. Here on the show, we answer questions about Vermont that have been asked and voted on by you, our audience. Yeah, like right here's about the places. It drops off really quickly. Today, we're excited to present our third annual Brief History of Vermont Road Names. Every summer, we hop in our cars and drive all over Green Mountain Creation to find the origins of the strange road names you're wondering about. There's not much you can see on it now. It's just a dirt road in the country. Though we don't always succeed. I don't know of anybody around now that would even know how hell it got its name. I'd like to say yes. I'd like to be able to say I'm all on board with these legends. They're fun. As usual, we'll be referencing the authoritative book, Vermont Place Names, by Esther Monroe Swift. By the way, everyone should keep an eye out for this book at yard sales and the like, because it is out of print and very expensive used. If you happen to have a spare copy lying around, get in touch. We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund. Welcome. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. If you're a regular listener, you know our show runs public voting rounds to determine which listener question we take on. Normally, we have three finalists and one winner. But for this show, since we get so many road name questions, we did something different. Ten finalists and four winners. Our first answer turned out to be quite spooky. My colleague Lydia Brown takes it from here. Our first question comes from Peter Langella, who wanted to know the true origin of Devil's Washbowl, a single-lane dirt road connecting the towns of Moortown and Northfield. And the reason I said true origin is because there's so many myths, you know, kind of surrounding what this road is. A single winding road is the only way in and the only way out. Locals call it the Devil's Washbowl stories about what's happened there. They came running back to the school, one of them in tears and scared stiff. They were really shook up. Something charged at them down over the bank of the sand pit. They named it the pig man. The pig man. Pig man. Pig man. Head of a hog. Claws for hands. Human feet. 
Where the man ends and the pig begins is anybody's guess. So that's when the manhunt started. And so that's kind of all part of it. Like, everyone has these little stories, but I really wanted to see if your program could get to the true root of all of that. It's nearly impossible to tell the story of Devil's Washbowl without also telling the story of a legendary creature said to roam the woods here, the Pigman. Let's move out of the road here a bit. <laughs> Few speak about the Pigman with more authority than Jeff Hatch. Jeff's from this area, and per his request, we meet at a culvert along Devil's Washbowl. It's one of the few pull-offs along this road, and it's quiet here, almost otherworldly. I used to bring my grandsons up here and, and at night, and we'd stop right here. Here, beneath a canopy of deciduous trees, it's daytime, but jagged shadows cast a sea of darkness around us. It's the kind of atmosphere that beckons a spine-chilling story, and Jeff has one to tell. It begins something like this. As 17, 18-year-old boys... It was the early 1970s, and Northfield High School was hosting a dance. When we would have a dance, we would hide our beer down in the sand pit behind the cemetery by the school. One night we were all at the dance, and a couple of the fellows headed to the sand pit, and these were normal guys. These weren't little kids that were afraid of things. Um, they came running back to the school. Uh, one of them in tears and scared stiff. They were really shook up. According to Jeff, his classmates had had a run-in with some sort of creature. They said it was uh, all white, uh, the size of a person, running on two feet. Um, covered in white hair. They named it the pig man because it had the face of a pig and the body of a person. You might recall our question asker Peter was curious about the true origin of the stories tied to Devil's Washbowl. Well, if you continue along this road in the direction of Northfield, you'll eventually come across a seemingly important clue. There used to be a pig farm. This place is storied among locals, and what better setting for a pigman hunt than a pig farm? So we would come up here at night and go to the pig farm, and there was 600-pound pigs in, in the buildings. In, in the dark, there was no power. But we would, we would go in there looking. Before long, others began reporting encounters with the pigman. Someone lived up on Turkey Hill which is the other side of town. And they heard something in their trash cans. So they flipped on the light to see. And there was a figure at the end of their driveway, all white, covered in hair, rummaging in the trash can. So they yelled at it. And it turned and looked at them. And it had the face of a pig and claws. And... It made a horrendous noise and ran off. Could you potentially make the noise? I don't think I could potentially make the noise. Uh, it was a snarl, kind of a growl, uh, high-pitched. Back at Devil's Washbowl, Jeff says the creature began targeting young romantics. So one night some, there was a couple up here and something jumped on their car, clawed the sides of their, their, sides of their car all up, scratched it all up broke one of the mirrors off. Did you see the car? 
I did see the car. And something obviously had happened. There was something that had come after them. And that happened four or five times during the course of the next summer. If you look at the broader context of when, what was happening in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, is that you, you have a time of really big up social upheaval around the country. This is Andrew Liptak. He grew up in Moortown, just a short drive from Devil's Washbowl. He's a writer, journalist, and sci-fi fanatic, and he's given a lot of thought to the Pigman and the appeal of this local legend. You have, you know, UFO sightings. You have um, Bigfoot. There's a lot of like social anxiety, and I think people are sort of sort of look for like, you know, scary things that are sort of intangible to sort of latch onto that you can you can't quite explain away. Some even connect this area to the devil itself, which takes us back to our question asker and the true origin of Devil's Washbowl. Again, here's Peter. My wife's grandfather, he would tell stories about, you know, hearing that that's where, you know, the devil washed his dishes down there in the washbowl where where kind of the road bends and the brook comes through. An alternate version has it that it's where the devil would go to wash his feet. Go there to wash something. (laughs) Kay Schluter's lived in Northfield since the mid-1980s. She spent more than a decade as curator for the Northfield Historical Society. And after hearing Peter's question, Kay began her own investigation into the origin of the name Devil's Washbowl, which led her, perhaps not too surprisingly, to Esther Swift's Vermont place names. While there's no direct reference to Devil's Washbowl in this book, Esther does cite other locations with Devil in the name. They all have to do with an area of of land or a hill or something that's difficult. And so people associate that sometimes with Devil. An inhospitable landscape. And yeah, like right here's about the place, it drops off really quickly. Andrew Liptak takes me for a distanced walk back to the place where I met Jeff Hatch, the culvert. It's located in a basin said to be the washbowl, and the temperature immediately drops here. So you've got the trees coming up above you and they arch over the road, and they're old. Like you can see they're big and, and they've been here for a long time, they're just dark. And you know, Right now it's midday, but like, you know, October, November, the sun sets really fast over the mountain. The light will just vanish. That's when, you know, the idea of ghosts and monsters isn't quite so implausible. That piece was produced by Lydia Brown. Coming up, a circuitous investigation into Lost Nation Road. But first... Um, we were just driving around with our uh, our young daughter trying to help her get some sleep. And we were driving from Grafton to Chester and we noticed a road called Popple Dungeon Road. This is question asker Patrick Spurlock. I, I grew up in the 80s and there was a cartoon show and a corresponding stuffed animal line from Hasbro called Popples. Mom, here come the Popples for your child. Popples are pals that pop out of pockets. Popples are pals that pop out of pockets. And uh, obviously there was also a separate thing for older kids called Dungeons and Dragons. Barbarian, magician, thief, cavalier, and acrobat. So I see a road called Popple Dungeon Road. The mental imagery 
is just crazy. <laughs> so I'm like, where did this name come from? So is there any connection between Popples and the Popple Dungeon Roads in Vermont? Would that it were so. I, I wish, somehow. <laughs> Lucky for us, the answer to Patrick's question was already out there, thanks to this gentleman, Ethan DeSeif. My research suggests that there is no connection. Ethan lives in California now. He's a lecturer in communications and media studies at Sonoma State University. But he used to work for seven days. And in 2014, he wrote this piece. WTF, why are streets in two Vermont towns named Popple Dungeon Road? Those two towns are Chester and Charlotte, which are in totally different parts of the state. I want to note that our question asker, Patrick, knew that some sort of answer to his question existed. But he told me that he purposefully avoided it because he wanted BLS to answer it. Which, Patrick, that is such a compliment. Thank you. But Ethan DeSeif really does get all the credit for this one. In this context, popple is a, a term, it's an old New England term, not used much anymore as far as I know, that can refer to any number of trees. One would suspect that it has a close relationship with a poplar tree, and it can often and, and often does refer to poplar trees, but it's not specific to poplar. So kind of a um, vernacular nickname almost for just trees. As far as I can tell, and that was by consulting the Dictionary of American Regional English. Okay, so that's popple. Um, what about dungeon? What's the connection there? Yeah, so I so the dungeon part was the weirdest part. Um, and that was the part that I remember being most puzzled by. But then I found this book called The Source. Popple Dungeon, Vermont, The Settlement, Farms, and Genealogy of a Small Community in Vermont. And I thought, well, <laughs> that book was tailor-made for this question. An entire book about Popple Dungeon. Sometimes you just get lucky. And so basically there was a stretch of road in Chester that locals referred to as the dungeon because there were a bunch of tree branches that hung over the road so that it apparently cast dark shade. It was a, a shadowy stretch of road. And so by association with a dungeon being a, a dark place, that road was the Popple Dungeon Road. How did Charlotte pick up this eccentric name? Ethan heard this story from a Charlotte resident named Ed Amadon. I remember him telling me that originally uh, people moved into a street that was unnamed in Charlotte. And the family who lived there, according to Ed Amadon, had uh, a mischievous son, I think is how he put it, who stole the road sign from the Chester Popple Dungeon Road and put it on the street sign or, you know, nailed it to a, a tree or something like that and declared this new street in Charlotte also to be named Popple Dungeon Road. Why? I, I don't know if we'll ever know. Whatever the reason, the name stuck. And eventually, it got recorded as the official name of the road after a 1993 statute that required every road in Vermont to have a name for E911 response. That's just what locals got to calling it. And so when it was time to declare a name, there was one name that was ready. And so there we go, Popple Dungeon Road. What else are we going to call it? What else indeed? This is Brave Little State's third annual Brief History of Vermont Road Names. When we come back, a BLS reporter is humbled by a seemingly straightforward question. That's right after this. It's Brave Little State. I'm Angela Evansy. Today, we are answering your burning questions about mysterious Vermont road names. 
There are so many of them that we do this show every summer. Our next name got assigned to my colleague Nina Keck. And listeners, when you voted for this question, I don't think you knew what Nina would be in for. Yeah. Can you hear me? Am, am I still here? I, I can hear you, Ellen. Yeah. Can, can you hear me? Yes, I can. This is Ellen Reed of St. Albans. She's mostly retired now, but she used to spend a lot of time driving for work. Traveling in rural Vermont, I've come across roads that are named Lost Nation Road. I wonder, what does the name Lost Nation refer to? More than one town has them. I've found them in Essex. I found them in Fairfield, Bakersfield, Enosburg. And they seem to be remotely located. Ellen's right. According to the state's 911 emergency mapping system, there are five separate Lost Nation roads that cross eight different towns. And all are in northern Vermont. Ellen says the name has always made her wonder. Oh, well, I think it conjures up images of mystical things. <laughs> I don't know, was it the 12th tribe of Israel or was it Indians or a settlement that didn't make it? I don't know. In Vermont, if you're thirsty, you can pour yourself a Lost Nation beer. Drama or comedy are on tap at the Lost Nation Theater in Montpelier, where they would be if we weren't in the midst of a pandemic. Firepower, that's available at Lost Nation Guns and Ammo and Swanton. But the stories behind this phrase, that, dear listeners, became a bit of a goose chase. According to Esther Swift's book of Vermont Place Names, the Lost Nation Road in East Fairfield was probably a nickname, since it was an area far from the more settled section of town. Swift's entry on the Lost Nation Road in Essex was equally bland. Seems someone got lost in that area, and when he was found, he announced he'd been at Lost Nation. Not much to go on. John of Bakersfield, this is Tammy. Hi, Tammy. This is Nina Keck. To try to answer this question, I made a lot of calls. Town clerks, librarians, longtime residents, and historical society members. (laughs) That doesn't mean I know all this stuff. I've only lived here a little over 20 years. I don't really know anything about where I come from. Okay, so first of all, what's your name again? that I know that it's not a prank call. Oh, yeah, fair enough. You can Google me. I don't know anybody around now that would even know how he got his name. Uh, Gary Montague, uh, that's his sister. Okay, N-I-N-A. Correct. No, not really. Not, not the history of it. I just know the name of it. I've only lived here since 1987. Just. Yeah. <laughs> Despite all those phone calls. Well, thank you very much for your help. I appreciate okay. it. All <laughs> right, good luck. I struck out. I did not find any solid answers or fleshed-out theories on the Lost Nation roads in Bakersfield, Berkshire, or East Haven, which Craftsbury resident Dave Link nicely rubbed in. So you've still got a mystery. (laughs) But Dave said we're not the only ones curious about the name. He said the Craftsbury Historical Society, which he's a member of, discussed this very topic back in 2015 during one of their meetings. Lost Nation Road. Lost Nation Road. This one puzzles me. Well, yeah. When did they name it and by whom? That's the big, those are the two big questions. Well, there was a hippie colony. One gentleman remembers a hippie colony in North Walcott that called themselves Lost Nation Farm. They'd previously lived in Craftsbury. Maybe they named the road, he wondered. 
Others weren't sure. I can't see the moderator at this meeting, but I imagine he's shrugging his shoulders at this point as he looks around the room and hears no clear consensus. Well, there's a history's mystery. Another of history's mysteries, he declares, and moves on to the next quirky road name. Russ Spring has a family business on the Lost Nation Road in Craftsbury. His parents founded the Craftsbury Outdoor Center back in the 1970s, and he's heard several theories about the road name. The most interesting one was a story told by Earl Wilson, who was an old-timer, who many years ago actually plotted the route of the Bailey-Hazen Road as it went through Craftsbury. Russ mentioned the Bailey-Hazen Trail. Like, I should know what it was. But I didn't. And it's worth explaining. I think some fife and drum music would help here. During the Revolutionary War, the Continental Army needed a shorter route to Canada to help in their siege of Quebec. So in 1776, George Washington ordered this new road to be cleared and built between what is now Newbury, Vermont, and St. John's, Quebec, near Montreal. Jacob Bailey and Moses Hazen were the key instigators of building it. So that's where that road name comes from. If only Lost Nation were as easily explained. Anyway, work on the Bailey-Hazen Road proceeded in fits and starts for several years during the Revolution until it was eventually abandoned. According to Earl Wilson's theory, that Revolutionary War trail may help explain the Lost Nation Road in Craftsbury. When they were kind of clearing that trail, they came across a pre-existing trail. And they decided, well, this must we, we're going to call this uh, Lost Nation Road after the, the Lost Nation of Israel that must have made it. But in fact, Earl thought it was more likely a, uh, a trail that was made by Native Americans along the side of the, the lake, and uh, it just uh, intersected the route of the uh, Bailey-Hazen Road. That was how he told the story. This Native American connection comes up a lot, and not just in Vermont. There are actually Lost Nation roads all over the country. I asked Rich Holshue about this. I am a resident of Wantastagoc, better known as Brattleboro, Vermont. I serve as a spokesperson for the El Nu Abenaki tribe uh, here in southern Vermont. Rich is a researcher of local indigenous culture. He doesn't know of any corresponding Abenaki references in the Vermont towns with Lost Nation roads. He thinks the name reflects a broader story of the erasure and displacement of Native people, a story that he says has been cloaked in mystery and fantasy. Americans love to romanticize Native heritage. We name our athletic teams. We name our, our butter after them. We <laughs> all, all, all different things. It becomes a romantic thing, and it's got very little to do with truth in that the building of this country is founded upon displacing all of that and uh, exploiting it. Rich says a road sign with the name Lost Nation helps sustain a stereotype that Native American communities are gone. That, of course, is false. What they don't realize is that the Native person might be standing right next to them and looks exactly like them. And the reason that they don't see that is because they weren't taught that. They're ignorant of that. And if one does not recognize or know about something, you don't care about it. 
Native people are still here, says Rich. They haven't vanished. But what happened to them, the occupation, the colonization, the reality of that, is hard to face. And so it's a lot easier to have lost nations. Tim German has been doing his own sleuthing on the history of Lost Nation Road, where he lives in Essex. Here, he thinks the name recalls a different kind of community. Kind of a nasty day to go exploring. Yeah, but I got some umbrellas, so we we won't have to go far. On a rainy Monday, Tim drives me to northwest Essex, a part of town historians refer to as the Lost Nation area. There's not much you can see on it now. It's just a dirt road in the country. Tim's been researching early 19th century homesteads in this area. But all of this road, and especially out here, the names. Wood, that's an Irish name. Shanley is an Irish name. And all of these people I found in the census, they were all born in Ireland. We get out of his car to hike in nearby Indian Brook Park, which backs up on the Lost Nation Road. You'll see how rocky and hard scrabble it, it is. It's right here. This is the, doesn't look like much, but that's a man-made, that was a cellar hole right there. And this was one of the Day families. Using historical records, Tim's been able to identify a large number of homesteads. Some, like this one, are now nothing more than echoes rocky holes covered with sticks and brambles hidden alongside the trail. And then you come to find out that there's at least 30 families, and then as time goes on, more than that, you know, moving in, and they're very Irish, and they're in the poorest part of town. And as you start to think about it, you hike here in the fall or the winter, and you start, oh, my God, winter here before any amenities. But this was a difficult, difficult life. So I, I just started to think, Lost Nation, Um, Lost Nation is their homeland. There's something very poetic about the name Lost Nation. Almost sad, a little mythic. It it is very poetic, yeah. It is sad. It's evocative of something that was there before. You know, there were people living here, and there was a community here, and then over time... It just became too hard. That piece was produced by Nina Keck. For our last question... To me, this is coming into the notch proper. Because we don't have any center lines. I'm sitting in the back seat of Barbara Bayra's Subaru, wearing a mask getting a tour of Route 108, a.k.a. Mountain Road. Can you see through those trees? There's one of the more recent landslides. This steep and narrow road winds through the area that Misha Torin asked us about. My name is Misha Torin. I'm from Jericho, Vermont. How did Smuggler's Notch get its name, and what kind of legends and folklore still exist about treasure hunting in that area today? Smuggler's Notch. Not exactly a road name, but, you know. Like, I know a little bit about the history. I know that the name of Smuggler's Notch comes from the trade embargoes with Great Britain and Canada. And I know that there was some smuggling that happened during Prohibition. But I've also heard that there's these tales of, like, 
treasure that has been hidden in the, the caves there and in the rock walls and different things like that. And I'm curious what kind of like treasure hunter type things there are there. What is the treasure? What is the treasure? The treasure of smugglers notch. According to this song by Rock and Ron, the friendly pirate, the treasure is honey from a honeybee. A bit tangential, but it's been in my head ever since I found it on YouTube. So I thought I'd pass it on. They hide it in a cave, and it's really, really, really in there. Billy Bob! What is the treasure? As for the origin of the name, perhaps you've heard the history that Misha mentions. That the notch was used for smuggling goods and cattle around the War of 1812. And then, later, booze during Prohibition. That smugglers used the Rocky Pass for hiding out or stashing contraband. It's compelling. And we'll pull in, and I'll show you the caves. Perfect. And we'll start the myth conversation. (laughs) My tour guide, Barbara Bayra, happens to be the president of the Stowe Historical Society. When we get to the top of the notch, we stand by some stone outcroppings. And she tells me that the stories of smuggling here, particularly in the 1800s, seem to be just that. Stories. I don't need total written documentation, but I need more than just a comment or two. And I've read a lot of the local town meetings, letters, and I can't put it together. I mean, if it's if it's true, I'd love somebody to put it under my nose. <laughs> I really would, because then I wouldn't have to go looking anymore. <laughs> Barbara doesn't put much stock in another genre of stories, which is that people fleeing slavery use the notch to move north. Lots of other ways to go. Just going up and down the major highways like Route 7 or 100. The first road through the notch for automobiles was surveyed in 1917. For this reason, Barbara thinks the stories of prohibition smuggling during the 20s and 30s are more plausible. But I I don't believe that it was part of the big movement that has been written about coming across the border and going down into Albany or going over into the Boston area. It comes back to that same question. That same question being, why would you take the path of most resistance? The Notch Road isn't easy going, even today. Plus, this area has been known as Smuggler's Notch since at least the late 1800s. Isn't that a little predictable? Yeah, if if you're smuggling booze during the Prohibition, probably the last place you want to go is where it's named Smuggler's Knot, because that's where the cops are going to be waiting. Brian Lindner is another historian of this area. In my opinion, as a historian, it's much more likely that there wasn't really any smuggling going on through Smuggler's Knot. This is probably where the smugglers that were active over in the Lake Champlain Valley came to hide, because this is a perfect hiding spot but it's a terrible place to smuggle products back and forth uh, through the notch itself. Brian grew up in Stowe, right at the entrance to the notch. Until he was 10 years old, he literally lived in a ski lodge. My dad was the forest ranger here for the Mount Mansfield State Forest, and our apartment was in the north end of the Mount Mansfield Base Lodge. So that's where we lived. Brian is retired now and calls himself an unofficial historian at Stowe Mountain Resort. He's full of stories about this area, but they're true stories, not legends. Stories of the Civilian Conservation Corps, 
or CCC. They constructed the first ski trails in Vermont. And of this area's connection to World War II and the 10th Mountain Division, which waged battle on skis. In World War II, Minnie Dole, who was a member of Mount Mansfield Ski Patrol, founded the National Ski Patrol. He convinced President Roosevelt to form the 10th Mountain Division in World War II. Um, So you can trace the 10th Mountain Division routes right back to Stowe. Brian even told me the story of a Bonnie and Clyde-style shootout that happened here in the Notch. In July 1931, a fellow deserted the Army at Fort Ethan Allen, committed murder over in the Jeffersonville side of the Notch, and as he was driving through, people in Jeffersonville, Cambridge, called the Stowe side and said, set up a roadblock, there's a killer coming through Smuggler's Notch. Amazingly, they riddled the car with bullets and never hit him once. No way. Our question asker, Misha, asked about legends of treasure here in Smuggler's Notch. In my research, I found mostly general references to stashes of loot left behind by smugglers, which maybe there weren't so many of those. I also saw a few mentions of a Captain Slayton, a former 49er, who searched for gold in a local brook and either didn't find much or did, but pretended he didn't. Neither Brian Lindner nor Barbara Bayra had any treasure stories to share. They say the true stories are just as good. But if you want to tell tales of smuggling and hiding out in the notch, Barbara Bayra doesn't mind. No, we have to have myths and legends. I mean, that's what society is about. That's what oral history is about. And it's fun. Thanks so much for listening to the show. And thanks to Peter Langella, Patrick Spurlock, Ellen Reed, and Misha Torin for the great questions. If you have a question about Vermont place names or anything else, ask it at bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can sign up for our newsletter and vote on the question you want us to tackle next. We are on Instagram and Twitter at BraveStateVT. Lydia Brown and Nina Keck reported this episode with me with editing from Lynn McRae. Our digital producer is Elodie Reed, and we have engineering support from Chris Albertine. Ty Gibbons composed our theme music, other music by Blue Dot Sessions, and the United States Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. The archive audio in our Devil's Washbowl piece came from Monsters and Mysteries in America. Special thanks to Paul Gillis, Craig Whipple, Abigail Giles, Ethan DeSeif, and Joe Citro. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund and VPR members. If you like our show, please make a gift at bravelittlestate.org donate. Or leave us a rating or review on your podcast app. I'm Angela Evansy. We'll be back soon with a question about religion in Vermont. Until then, remember, be brave, ask questions. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.